thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And, well, thank you to all three of you, to Edmund, Mary, and Charlotte, for the um, invitation to come today. It's a real pleasure, a great privilege, um, to have the opportunity to talk about my research um, in this special forum. So many thanks indeed. Um, before launching into the paper, just at the outset, I'd like to say a few words about um, its genesis. It stems from my work into the Hohenzollern court of the electors of Brandenburg, later kings in Prussia, and more specifically into my present topic or my present obsession, if you like, into the depiction of the Hohenzollern consort, that is to say the electresses of Brandenburg, queens in Prussia, for roughly a hundred years, beginning in 1613. So that's where it all sort of starts. In disciplinary terms, this study is based in part on the visual arts, but to a large extent, it's based on the diverse print media um, that were produced by the court. And by that I mean occasional verse, reports of state occasions, reports of festivities, and the very weighty, substantial funeral publications. And in fact, those are what, we're going, what, what, what I'm going to talk about today. Um, these materials are significant because they provide insight into the self-fashioning of the dynasty. Um, if you like, they reveal a great deal about the way in which the ruling family perceived and then projected its role within the wider family of the state. In many respects, these sources are a kind of or, or function as the official means of communication by which um, images of the dynasty are presented, be it to the Hohenzollern's own subjects or to other courts um, in the empire. So that's just a word about the sources. The context of today's paper lies in what is known as Brandenburg's Second Reformation, that's to say the dynasty's rejection of Lutheranism and embrace of Calvinism, um, in 1613, Calvinism or Reformed Protestantism, and then the subsequent efforts to introduce Calvinism into Brandenburg. So that's the context. And the focus, let's just see, yes, the focus. The focus is the impact of these processes, the introduction of the Second Reformation, on the portrayal of two dynastic women. The first is the first Calvinist electress of Brandenburg, Elizabeth Charlotta, and the second is her mother, Louisa Juliana of Orange. Um, why it is that Louisa Juliana of Orange, obviously of the, of the Dutch Republic, that she should be in, um, regarded as a dynastic woman of the Hohenzollerns, well, that will emerge in due course. Um, in general terms, my argument is that Brandenburg's Calvinist turn from Lutheranism and the particular circumstances surrounding this had a direct impact on the depiction of these women. So within today's workshop, um, my paper is concerned with 
responses to the Second Reformation. And I was a little concerned because actually one doesn't hear the voices <laughs> of, the, um, of, of these two women, the Electress of Brandenburg and the Dowager Electress of the Palatinate. These voices are mediated. We perhaps can pick up on that in the discussion. But in broad terms, I examine how the Calvinist confessional identity that is specific to the Hohenzollerns is reflected in the projected image of Elizabeth Charlotte and her mother. I believe, or I argue, that the way Elizabeth Charlotte and her mother were portrayed is a neat encapsulation of what the Hohenzollerns came to understand by the term evangelisch, or Protestant. And um, uh, you'll see what I mean as the paper unwraps. There are two sections to the paper. In the first, I focus on the dynastic and confessional context. That's to say the circumstances surrounding Elizabeth Charlotte's marriage into the Hohenzollern dynasty in 1616. And then, um, so I focus on that. That's the period leading up to the Calvinist turn in 1613 and the period immediately afterwards. And then in the second part, of the paper, I get down to the um, depiction of these dynastic women. Now, I wasn't sure um, how many people here are Germanists or are familiar with the empire in the early modern period, so I thought we'd start the dynastic um, section of the paper just with a map, which is always helpful, I find. Um, so, Brandenburg is this blue territory in the northeast of the empire. Its capital is Berlin. It neighbors um, Saxony, Lutheran Saxony, the sort of orangey brown territory. And then up outside the red line, outside the border of the empire, up there on the Baltic is Prussia. Okay, so we're talking about these territories um, at least at the outset. And Prussia has its capital in Königsberg. The other thing, before I sort of launch into the dynastic um, part of the paper, can I just draw your attention to the handout? Um, going into the, sort of, how should I put it, the, din the, the dynastic um, bit, the genealogy, if you like, and so on and so forth, of German territorial states is labyrinthine. And one soon becomes totally confused by these names of ruling princes. They're either exactly the same or very, very similar. So the handout, in the, at the beginning of the handout, I've just listed the electors of Brandenburg and also uh, as uh, the electors of the Palatinate. So, I certainly do. I certainly do. Okay. Just, just to help guide us and prevent um, com complete closure of brain. So I've just lifted the listed those names. Okay, so there's the map. We've got the dynasty. So I'll launch into the um, dynastic and confessional background. Um, the Hohenzollerns of Brandenburg were one of the preeminent dynasties um, in the empire. The period around 1613, the year in which Elector Johann Sigismund made his, pub his Calvinism public 
he took um, communion in the reformed manner in the Lutheran Cathedral in Berlin. That was on Christmas Day in 1613, and by this act made his Calvinism public, um, was a time of territorial expansion underpinned by a series of carefully targeted um, marriage alliances. One of these, so here we have Johann Sigismund, and one of these carefully targeted marriage alliances was his own to Anna of Prussia. Now, Anna of Prussia had an interesting and important um, genealogy. She was the granddaughter of Duke Albrecht of Prussia, the former grandmaster of the Teutonic Knights, who on the advice of Luther and Melanchthon, um, had dissolved this Catholic order, and in 1525, he introduced the Reformation to Prussia. He subsequently became the first Duke of Prussia and married a Danish Lutheran princess. This dukedom, buttressed by the um, university in Königsberg, which was founded in uh, 1544, became a staunch bastion of Lutheranism. I won't go into the manoeuvrings, um, or the Hohenzollern manoeuvrings, that secured their succession to Prussia in 1618, but this marriage between Johann Sigismund and Anna of Prussia was a critical step um, in achieving this goal. And I'm just going to flick back to the map. Now, the Hohenzollerns were expanding to the east, they were also expanding to the west within the empire. And I'll just point, it's very difficult. They expanded because of um, uh, Anna's genealogy. They were, she, Anna was the, through her mother, um, she was descended from the ducal house of Julich, Clave, and Berg. And Julich, Clave, and Berg are very small territories. In fact, they're very difficult to see. But it, but, you can press the button in the middle, it should actually uh, show a, a dead spot. Um, oh, oh, brilliant, thank you. <laughs> okay, that's great. There are these sort of territories around here. They're very small, but highly significant, largely because of their proximity um, to the, um, the low countries. And when the Duke of Julich Clavenberg died in 1609 without an heir, the Hohenzollerns, among other princes of the empire, laid claim to these small, but as I say, strategically important territories on the Rhine. Um, there was military confrontation, sort of a complex of, of, of quite, um, well, a, a complicated series of hostilities between the Catholics and the radical Protestants, and then very tough negotiations. <laughs> but by 1614, the Hohenzollerns had assumed sovereignty over the Duchy of Clave. So they've expanded east and they've expanded um, west. Let's go back to Sigismund and Anna. Parallel to these developments, the dynasty's Lutheran identity was shifting, not least because of this involvement in the west of the empire. The Hohenzollern response to the Lutheran Reformation had been complex. It was sometimes idiosyncratic. It was frequently contradictory and more often than not pragmatic. 
it ranged from full-blown rejection by Elector Joachim I, who was the brother of Albrecht von Hohenzollern, he of the many church offices, not least he was um, Archbishop of Mainz. So rejection by one generation. The next generation, Elector Joachim II, he introduced what's known as the Partial Reformation. So he introduced um, Luther's teachings, but he retained aspects of the ceremonial of the Catholic Church. And then he was succeeded by Elector Johann Georg of Brandenburg, who was a sort of signed-up, unyielding um, believer in the um, formula or advocate of the formula of Concord of um, 1577, the new definitive, quite rigid statement of Lutheranism, which set out um, the official interpretation of the Augsburg Confession. So there's a, a sort of range of responses to um, the Reformation over the course of the 16th century. However, towards the turn of the century, the appeal of Calvinism became increasingly pronounced. Spiritual issues aside, there are various arguments as to why, but there is a consensus that identifies three key factors. Resurgent Catholicism, following the Council of Trent, fear of the Habsburgs, the powerful secular arm of the papacy, and escalating confessional um, violence, exemplified by the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, and above all, by the brutality with which the Spanish Habsburgs dealt with the Dutch Revolt. Against this backdrop, Johann Sigismund was um, drawn to the Palatinate, and that's because of this territory here in the southwest of the empire. Um, the Palatinate had been the first major territory in the empire to adopt Calvinism and to take a stand against the Catholic threat. They'd already um, been involved in military support of co-religionists in France and in the Low Countries. Um, the turn of the century, Johann Sigismund spent time at the court in Heidelberg, um, and this was the court of Elector Friedrich IV of the Palatinate and his wife, Louisa Juliana of Orange. Um, and um, it was her influence, it was the influence of Louisa Juliana that was instrument, instrumental in bringing about Johann Sigismund's private conversion to Calvinism in 1606. It was agreed that their children, that is to say, Johann Sigismund's son, Georg Wilhelm, and the daughter of Friedrich IV and Louisa Juliana, Elisabeth Charlotte, then aged eight, would marry in due course a dynastic union that was highly charged, signalling that confessionally and politically, Brandenburg was throwing in its lot with the radical Protestants of the empire. So it was a significant marriage. Leadership of the radical Protestant bloc resided in the Palatinate. This is another complex topic, but in broad terms, the Palatine Second Reformation the ruling dynasty's conversion um, to Calvinism in the 1560s isolated the Palatinate within the empire. 
The response of the Lutheran princes was angry, hostile, and critical. They argued that the Peace of Augsburg of 1555 protected Protestants of one confession only, Lutheranism, and by adopting Calvinism, the Palatinate had put itself beyond the terms of the peace. The electors of the Palatinate, therefore, sought alliances with Calvinists outside of the empire. And this explains the wedding in 1593 of Elector Friedrich IV and Louisa Juliana. She was the daughter, <laughs> so we go on, but she was the daughter of William of Orange, William the Silent, um, the Calvinist leader of the Dutch Revolt, who'd been assassinated in 1584. It was a marriage that marked the Palatinate's entry into the Calvinist International, into the so-called nexus of European princely Calvinism. So that, too, was a very important alliance. Within the empire, the Palatinate went on to lead the Protestant Union. The alliance of radical Protestants determined to resist, to use the terminology of the period, the Papist Babylon and its agents, the Habsburgs. And we get a sense of the heated temperature within the Union from the report describing the wedding in 1613 of Elizabeth Charlotta's brother, Elector Friedrich V, to Elizabeth Stuart, the daughter of James VI of Scotland, first of England. From the perspective of the radical Protestants, the wedding was regarded as a most wonderful coup, a sign of James's intention to support them in their struggle. To celebrate the occasion, elaborate festivities were staged, including equestrian games. In one, as this um, engraving shows, Friedrich V, the young leader of the Union, processed to the tilt yard in the guise of the second Jason, there he is, on this model of the Argo. And this entry was accompanied by a song which cast Friedrich as the heroic leader of a Protestant crusade, he was 16 at the time, and forecast the doom and destruction of his Catholic enemies. Heady stuff indeed. So just to draw the, the threads together of, this, um, of setting out the context, the Calvinist turn of 1613 placed the Hohenzollerns in the radical Protestant camp. Within the empire, they were divided from the majority of Lutheran states, which tended, at this stage at least, to regard the Calvinists with greater hostility than the Catholic Habsburgs. Now, I move on to the second part of my talk and images of dynastic women. Um, over the years, I've done quite a lot of work on this wedding of 1613, not least because there is a considerable amount of material about it, of primary source material. This engraving, for example, is taken from a substantial publication by the Heidelberg Court, which details the wedding and the festivities that surrounded it in London, here in Oxford too, um, in the Dutch Republic and also in the Palatinate. However, 
For the wedding of Elisabeth Charlotte and Georg Wilhelm in 1616, a mere three years later, I found next to nothing, apart from the wedding sermon by Abraham Scultatus, the Heidelberg Calvinist theologian. There are no engravings, there's no poetry, there's no description of festivities, and nothing at all in the Berlin archives, at least as far as I've been able to establish. The reason for this, I suspect, lies in the confessional situation in Brandenburg and Prussia. Johann Sigismund's plans to introduce a second reformation, to introduce Calvinism in Brandenburg, were hugely, hugely divisive. His Lutheran clergy were enraged. His Lutheran subjects rioted on the streets of Berlin. His Lutheran wife, Anna, openly condemned Calvinism and encouraged the riot. She's supposed to have leant out of the windows of the Schloss in Berlin and sort of egged the rioters on. So in this context, open celebration of a wedding affirming Brandenburg's alliance with the leading Calvinist dynasty in the empire may well have provoked further unrest. So we're given an indication of the anti-Calvinist mood in Brandenburg by the reported reaction of the citizens of Berlin to the news in 1620 of the defeat of Friedrich V at White Mountain. On this occasion, there was celebration in the streets. Evidently, the electors' Lutheran subjects, or many of them at any rate, did not share the ruling dynasty's sympathy for the radical Protestant cause. As a bride, then, Elisabeth Charlotte is today essentially invisible. This portrait shows her with her husband, Georg Wilhelm, some 20 years into their marriage. But the dearth of printed source material remains a constant. In fact, the only published source I have found that treats her life and portrays an image of her is the funeral volume entitled Vares Christentum, or True Christianity, published on her death in 1660. This absence of sources is, I'm sure, a product of the destruction and rupture brought about by the Thirty Years' War. Although the Hohenzollerns drew back from military engagement in support of Friedrich V and adopted instead a policy of unarmed neutrality, this ultimately resulted in the despoilment of Brandenburg, which became the battleground for armies of all confessions. To escape, the court retreated to Königsberg. If the war went badly for the Hohenzollerns, it was even worse for the Palatinate, which was occupied by Catholic forces. This explains why Luisa Juliana resided at and was integrated into the Hohenzollern court. She was forced to flee the Palatinate in the early 1620s and took refuge at court until her death um, over 20 years later. So thus it is that Luisa Juliana, 
the daughter of the Calvinist icon and martyr, William the Silent, died in Königsberg, a bastion of Orthodox Lutheranism. Her funeral volume was published in 1645 and is also entitled True Christianity. Yet the similarity with Elizabeth Charlotta's funeral volume goes way beyond the title. There's a striking complementarity in the carefully constructed image each volume provides of the deceased. I go so far as to talk of the mirror image of mother and daughter. And here are the title pages of these two volumes. Now, the, the funeral volumes of this period were weighty tomes. For example, the volumes dedicated to Louisa Juliana and Elizabeth Charlotta were 80 and 100 pages, respectively. And these are relatively thin um, by comparison with others. Typically, these volumes comprise two parts, the sermon and the personalia a form of biography, also containing details of ancestry, and the personalia were read out as part of the funeral service. Such dynastic funeral volumes were designed to make a political or confessional statement, be it to other courts or to a home audience. And Anna of Prussia took advantage of that opportunity and used her funeral volume to condemn um, Calvinism and to celebrate her own Lutheranism. So, you know. um, the, 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 in the case of the mirror-imaged Louisa Juliana and Elizabeth Charlotta, their volumes were also constructed to convey a confessional message. The personalia elaborate on their shared Calvinist pedigree and heritage, presenting this in terms of suffering from the death of her father at the hands of the Catholic assassin to the loss of the Palatinate, Louisa Juliana has been persecuted for her faith. Elizabeth Charlotta's suffering has been no less acute. Um, she has witnessed the destruction of her native country and her adopted homeland. This emphasis on victimhood, on trial, is a characteristic of Calvinist self-perception in this period. And yet in the sermons, a rather different image emerges, one that is much less Calvinist and much more generically Protestant. As was the custom of the time, Louisa Juliana and Elizabeth Charlotta had taken considerable, um, considerable care in the preparation of their funerals. They selected Bible verses on which the sermon was to be based, and these Bible verses demonstrated their piety and the teaching that had um, guided them throughout their lives. So they were chosen very carefully. Louisa Juliana's text, 1 Peter 17.25, is presented in the sermon above all as an expression of the key Protestant belief that the path to redemption is provided by the blood of Christ. Consequently, her hope of salvation is based not, I quote, on her own worthiness, but on God's loving grace, not on her own merit or the intercession of saints, but solely on the dear blood of the Son of God. 
Elizabeth Charlotta's funeral text, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, 8 to 10, also conveys core Protestant belief. Namely, that salvation is achieved through God's grace, the faith of the believer, and the redemptive power of Christ's blood. Both sermons highlight that the deceased rejected good works as a way of advancing on the path to heaven. Um, there's some interesting quotations. It's stressed that Louisa Juliana knows that God cannot be bribed with silver or gold, that, that at the day of judgment, no one will be able to save their soul because they've said they've given arms or built a church. Elizabeth Charlotta is described performing her duties as the mother of her people, typically showing charity to widows and orphans. But these acts are carried out as an expression of profound faith, not, it's emphasised, in an, in an attempt to prove her worth to God. Like her mother, she is assured salvation, we're told, precisely because of her exemplary faith. And it's notable that in these sermons, there's no reference made to the Calvinist as opposed to the Lutheran understanding of the blood of Christ, over which they'd been disputing for decades, nor is there any reference at all to the Calvinist doctrine of predestination. In short, the images drawn of mother and daughter stress an exemplary Protestantism as opposed to a model Calvinism. Both women have lived lives in adherence to Protestant doctrines, which apply just as much to Calvinists as to Lutherans. In this respect, the sermons demonstrate what's known as the Reformed Irenicism that distinguished the Hohenzollerns and developed in response to the overt tensions between the Calvinist minority at court and the Lutheran majority in Brandenburg and Prussia. In the aftermath of the tumult caused by Johann Sigismund's conversion and his efforts to introduce the Second Reformation, the Hohenzollerns soon recognized that they had to tolerate the Lutheranism of the majority. In their policy of confessional tolerance, they were guided by their court chaplain, Johann Bergius. And here we have a, an engraving of Bergius. Bergius was a leading Irenicist. That is to say, he sought to overcome the divide between the Protestant churches on the one hand by underlining what they agreed on in terms of faith and doctrine and on the other by downplaying what divided them. Bergius, an influential professor of theology at the Calvinist University of Frankfurt under order, was a cosmopolitan figure, wholly integrated into the um, Calvinist international. He'd studied in Heidelberg at the, the um, key um, Calvinist university in the empire. After that, he'd traveled in England, in France, and the Dutch Republic, where he'd studied at the University of Leiden, the Calvinist university in the Dutch Republic. But his experience of um, the confessional tension in Europe of this period had brought him to the conclusion 
that the commonality linking Lutherans and Calvinists was infinitely greater than the points of doctrine that separated them. In his view, both denominations follow Luther's teaching in the Augsburg Confession of 1530, and therefore Lutherans and Calvinists alike should unite around their shared belief that what's necessary for salvation can be found in the Bible. In contrast to his radical co-religionists, um, Bergius rejected the doctrine of predestination. This was obviously a major bone of contention between the two camps. Instead, he adopted what is known as a universalist position. He argued that Christ died not just for the elect, but for all, although only those who believe will find salvation. Just a note. Um, now, Bergius gave the sermon on Louisa Juliana's death. And as the sketch I've just given indicates, he used this occasion to voice his conciliatory views presenting Louisa Juliana as an embodiment of reformed Irenicism. Bergius was then succeeded as court chaplain by his pupil, Bartholomeus Stosch, who shared his beliefs. And in the sermon on Elizabeth Charlotte's death, which was written by Stosch, he, like Bergius, fashions the image of the deceased in accordance with his Irenical ideals. So, within the hierarchy of Calvinist women in the empire, Louisa Juliana and Elizabeth Charlotta may have been at the very pinnacle, yet in these sermons they are not styled as Calvinist, but rather as Evangelisch or Protestant. The similarity in the depictions of these women is, if you like, polyconfessional. Evokes an overarching inclusive form of Protestantism. And to conclude, I just want to examine the issue of audience and intent. Who were the audiences of 1645 and 1660, and what messages were being sent? In 1645, I think two audiences are being addressed one domestic, the other Lutheran, notably Lutheran Saxony. So let's look at those first. First, the domestic audience then. Bergius is targeting the Lutherans of Prussia, specifically the clergy of Königsberg. He had provoked their wrath on the death of Elector Georg Wilhelm, um, Elizabeth Charlotte's husband, five years earlier, because he'd held the funeral sermon in the Lutheran castle church in Königsberg. And this act was, if you like, a Calvinist red rag to the clergy's Lutheran bull. They sniffed a Calvinist plot and a threat to their um, religious liberty. The castle church in Königsberg is also the setting for Louisa Juliana's sermon. And it seems to me that Bergius takes this occasion as an opportunity to counter Lutheran hostility by stressing how the faith of the dynasty, as represented by Louisa Juliana, far from being alien or foreign, is in harmony with the central tenets of Lutheranism. 
It's as if the sermon is Bergius's invitation to the Lutherans to confessional tolerance. An invitation, if not to embrace Luther, um, Calvinism, then at least to accept it as a close relative. This idea is underpinned by his response to the zealotry of those Lutherans who attack him on the basis of what he terms, I quote, some contentious points of doctrine, end of quote, they question Louisa Juliana's godliness. They thus reveal their prejudice by attacking such an overtly pious figure whose memory all right-thinking Protestants should surely honour. As regards relations with Luther and Saxony, the emphasis on the commonality of faith is nothing new. Bergius's stress on the confessional similarities binding the two Protestant states goes back to the late 1620s, when the Habsburgs were at the height of their military success in the war and posed an acute threat to Calvinist Brandenburg, but also Lutheran Saxony. Then, in the late 1620s and early 1630s, Bergius sought to bring the two states together to present a united um, front in face of this common Catholic foe. By the 1640s, the Catholic threat may have weakened and the war may have lost its confessional charge, but Bergius was convinced that confessional harmony between the two Protestant states was vital in pursuit of an advantageous peace. In short, the presentation of Luisa Juliana as a Protestant ideal or a pan-Protestant ideal is a continuation of a long-standing programme to promote reconciliation and concord. By 1660, the date of Elizabeth Charlotte's death and 12 years after the Peace of Westphalia, the political and confessional situation had moved on. The terms of the peace gave official recognition to Calvinism and within the empire, and the Hohenzollerns were engaged in very different wars in which confessional allegiance was of no or very limited consequence. Stosch's sermon is therefore not part of a strategy of engagement with Lutheran states. In my view, he had primarily one audience in mind, the Lutherans of Brandenburg, Prussia. The division between the Calvinism um, of the court and the Lutheranism of the majority remained as problematic as ever. At the time Stosch composed the sermon, he was seeking to improve relations between the two camps. From the Lutheran perspective, these, let, these um, efforts may have seemed heavy-handed or totally objectionable, but nonetheless, reconciliation was Stosch's task. His projection of Elisabeth Charlotta fits accordingly. His depiction of her as the mother of her people emphasizes that her acts of charity or, um, make no distinction between Lutherans and Calvinists. Rather, she cares for all her subjects, whatever their confession, and in this way bridges the divide between them. In an echo of Bergius's treatment of Louisa Juliana, Stosch presents Elisabeth Charlotta 
and the hardline Lutherans in sharp relief. The intended impact of the contrast between Elizabeth Charlotta, I quote, this, this shining example of all Christian virtues and those ungrateful zealots whose hearts are so filled with religious hatred, end of quote, um, that they would impugn her Christian conduct is clear to all. It is an appeal to all Lutherans to overcome their mistrust, to recognize and acknowledge the familiar piety of their Calvinist rulers, and to unite around them. Thank you.